You'd have to be living under a rock to not know that we're in the middle of a rental crisis in Australia. Over the past couple of years, we've experienced record levels of rent increases, record low vacancy rates and record numbers of new immigrants. All things you would expect to encourage property investors to participate in the market. And yet, investors are selling up. What is going on? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we want to understand why increasing numbers of investment properties are being sold, and we'll be talking with Nicola McDougall, the Chair of the Property Investment Professionals of Australia, otherwise known as PIPA. Nicola is a property and finance journalist and the co-author of The Female Investor, Creating Wealth, Security and Freedom Through Property, which won the Personal Finance and Investment category at the 2022 Australian Business Book of the Year Awards. Well done. She's also the co-author of the third edition of Property Investing for Dummies and the first editions of Buying a Property for Dummies and Property Investing Essentials for Dummies, all released in 2023 and published by Wiley. Nicola was the former editor of the Australian Property Investor magazine, former head of corporate affairs at REIQ, and has been voluntary PIPA board director since 2014, taking on the role of chair at 2022. And today we're going to discuss the results of the ninth annual PIPA Investor Sentiment Survey. Wow, what a mouthful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicola. Thank you. It is getting a little unwieldy, that intro. But anyway, it's <laughs> what happens when you do a lot of things. You're a very busy woman. I like to keep busy. It keeps me out of trouble or maybe it creates more trouble for me. I'm not too sure, but I like it. <laughs> well, the investor space at the moment is is lots of trouble for everyone. So um, let's get stuck into that. Before we dig into what the survey reveals, can you explain the methodology uh, so that we can get an understanding of who was surveyed? Yeah. So the survey, as you mentioned, Veronica, it's in our ninth year and we always run it in August every year, uh, have it open for about three weeks. And um you know, obviously a non-profit association, so we, we generally send the release out, send the survey out to our members who then pass it on to their clients who predominantly are, are property investors. Um, and over recent years as well, we've been able to tap into uh, the membership of our sister association, the Property Investors Council of Australia. Uh, so fundamentally what that means is we are getting, you know, everyday uh, mums and dad, mum and dad investors. Perhaps the, the survey might skew a little bit more educated because of the databases that we're targeting. Um, but this year, we actually had a record number of, of respondents to the survey, some uh, 1,724 survey respondents, um, which obviously makes the, the survey results very statistically reliable. And what were some of the, I mean, it's really the rental crisis is pretty scary, right? And, you know, there's been a lot of targeting at investors over, you know, many years now, they're the bad guys. And, you know, now we're seeing the issue with not enough investors in the market, but Investors selling is is the real trend. What are some of the alarming results? I guess you found through that survey, and you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that leads to some issues. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it, you know, the survey we have a static number of of questions um in the survey every year, and I've been involved in every single one of them. So 
you know, I probably probably can't speak to anyone else who knows more about the survey than me. Um, but so, but over the years, obviously, we do the survey does evolve, and we do you know talk about things that are newsworthy. You know, twenty nineteen, we talked about negative gearing in the lead up to the election, things like that, and and it really wasn't until last year's survey that we really decided to you know do a deeper dive into the selling intentions, not only intentions but the selling activity of investors, because we hadn't actually really been tracking that that much, which is a little embarrassing to admit. Um, but clearly, we wanted to understand as you know um, the the peak association what the heck was going on out there. Uh, so last year, alarmingly, it showed that you know nearly 17% of investors, so this is in the 2022 survey, nearly 20, um, nearly 17% uh, of investors had sold a property in the previous two years. Um, so clearly this year when we were doing the survey, we asked the same questions, albeit we just asked them oh, you know, what they'd been doing in regards to their selling activity in the, in the previous 12 months up to August. Um, and you could probably say, you know, quite truthfully, that the results are actually worse than last year, when more than twelve percent of investors actually said that they'd sold at least one property in the previous twelve months. Whereas, as I mentioned, uh, last year's survey was in the previous two years. Um, that was probably uh, slightly surprising to me. Um, last year's survey, the predominant reason why people had sold uh, was to make the most of rising market conditions, certainly in in markets such as Queensland, which had had fairly benign conditions for a long, long time. Uh, so we actually, you know, saw an uptick in the selling activity of investors uh, in the in the last twelve months, and a bit of a change in the locations where they've been selling as well. That's really interesting because um, that I mean we'll get into the top reasons for selling, obviously, but that I, and I know there's been quite a remarkable change from that being opportunistic to perhaps being more fearful, uh, perhaps, but also I mean there's interest rates in there as well, rising interest rates. So it'd be good to tease out that and to see if we can uh, distinguish between how much of it may have been that versus how much of it was other factors which we'll get into. But I thought also what was interesting was that only 24% of those 12% of investors that sold, sold to another investor. And so if my maths is right, that's a 9% fall in the rental pool. That's right, exactly, because last year it was 33% who indicated that sold uh, to an, to another investor, so and you can actually see that through the lending indicators data from the ABS that the normal um, you know volume of tra- of invested transactions or loan com- uh, commitments hasn't been keeping up to trend and has been falling uh, quite significantly actually since the start of the rising of the interest rate cycle in May last year. I actually just did some data uh, yesterday, um, and the number of new uh, loan commitments for investors have actually fallen twenty seven percent. Uh, since interest rates started to rise in, in May last year. Uh, so you can see there part of the reason why those investors who were selling uh, weren't selling them to other investors as much as they previously had been because we've seen investors not transacting as much as they usually are. And, and Nicola, have you got any idea of what the amount of, you know, investor or rental, what is the rental pool? Is it, you know, is it roughly three to three and a half million Sort of properties is what? What sort of numbers? Uh, nationally, it's a, I think off the top of my head, that's the one that I don't have in front of me, Chris. So thanks for asking that question. <laughs> I think it's oh, sorry. I think it's around about two point five million. From it's in the two and a half uh, million bracket nationally. Okay, nationally, but, but that's based on census data. Sorry, darling, that's based on census data. So that we're always working with this old data, right? Um, but that is the best net shop that we do have every five years of how many rental properties we have in, in, in the country. So that was based on the 2021 census data. 
2021 or 20, uh, oh yeah, sorry. So my calculation of 9% was basically that if 12% of investors sold and a quarter of those were sold to other investors, that means three quarters left the building. And so that three quarters basically makes up about 9% of the total pool. So we, we're talking a drop of, of over or close to 250,000 properties have potentially um, exited the market, which is significant given that what do we need? Is it a million we need or something? I mean, anyway. Well, I mean, that's look, the million that they're trying to build in the next yeah. five years. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> that'll probably just mop up the, 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 the supply that we need, we need right now. And, um, you know, with the data, especially last year when we decided to ask investors these questions, we actually did engage some independent analysis, you know, of the data because I, we couldn't quite believe, I guess, the figures that we were seeing in front of us. Um, and also, we actually even delved into the census data even more to make sure that we were actually just looking at, at pure rental properties. So not social housing, not any type of, you know, uh, so, uh, government housing or anything like that. It was actually, you know, true private investment properties out there to make sure that we were looking at that. And last year, potentially same thing, you know, hundreds of thousands potentially of properties that had been stripped um, from the market. So... Look, you know, between in the last three years, what could we say? You know, at least you'd have to admit that there'd probably be at least perhaps 10% of the rental market missing, at least, probably more than that, but I don't want to overplay it, um, missing in the last three years because those properties have simply been stripped from the market because not only have investors um, probably sold more than they historically do, uh, but they're not selling. We don't have the same volume of investors coming into the market. So it's like a, a perfect storm. But also that perfect storm, and you probably heard me talk about this before, you know, actually started in 2015. So we're at the tail end of 2023 now, but it started with the APRA changes, restrictions on lending to investors. And from that moment on, if you look at the data, if you're a data nerd like me, you can actually see uh, the falling volume of new loan and, uh, commitments to investors start happening in 2015. They usually around about 34, 35% of the market kept on falling, actually hit 22% in 2020, and has only relatively recently gone back to those historical averages. So we could probably safely say that this perfect storm that's created this you know, critical undersupply of rental properties that we have now started nearly nine years ago. And yet it actually hasn't improved affordability for people trying to buy. No. No, the, the argument often is like when we, you know, look at our data and there's a, a particular percentage, you know, particular percentage of people who bought, who were first time buyers, um, people go, well, doesn't that mean that they've freed up the rental market? Well, it's not that, it's not that simplistic. You know, we don't know where that first time buyer came from. Highly unlikely that they were living by themselves in a rental property while saving to buy a home. They're probably in a share house, probably more likely to still be at home. Um, so it's not, it's not as simple as, as saying that. Um, but certainly, you know, the usual supply, the usual volume of investors, which until 2015 created quite a stable rental environment across the nation, well, that's been blown apart since 2015 from a, 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 um, you know, a variety of policy positions um, and laws that have come in or even been threatened to come in uh, and investors have, have clearly been voting with their feet. Um, now that we're in an environment of much higher interest rates, clearly you've got a percentage of investors who simply can't secure the finance either. Yeah. So what are some of the top reasons for selling? This year, the the survey, the results were very different than last year. And we always ask similar, you know, we always give them, it's probably more than a dozen reasons and they can choose a variety of reasons why they might have decided to sell, you know, in the previous 
uh, 12 months. And as I mentioned at the outset, the number one reason last year was those rising market conditions. Uh, but this year, this year it was uh, the number one reason with 47% of respondents was due to governments increasing or threatening to increase taxes, uh, you know, levies and dues. So that was made, you know, property a much less attractive asset. So that was the number one reason why investors said that they'd sold their property. Um, I was surprised by that. I thought um, clearly that, you know, does do a lot of damage to investor confidence. Um, I would have presumed that rising interest rates, you know, given that this survey was conducted in August this year, so we'd had all of the interest rate increases thus far, um, I would have thought that that was number one, but it was actually number three. Uh, number two was changing uh, tenancy legislation, uh, making uh, investors feel that they, you know, not only losing control of their assets, um, but also increasing compliance and holding costs. Nicola, I mean, they're, they're two things that, I mean, tenants' rights, I'm, I'm probably for all those. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to live in a substandard rental property because the investor's got the power, right? So we need to, I, I think there should be some, high you know barriers to entry there for investors and a responsibility for them but the the fear around the government changing tax settings and and things like that that's where you start really playing with the pool right because if the there's not enough new people you know investing then people leaving and the problem with having you know two and a half three million investment properties particularly owned by the older generation as well right like that you know they're getting close to retirement they're, they're they're not just they're going well do i leave it in property do i put it into shares do i put it into my super like uh, I, I, it's getting quite lumpy in retirement. Maybe I should just sell down. Like you don't really want to upset them too much, right? Because if they start exiting and you don't have enough people entering, then the pool shrinks as our population grows. And particularly as more and more people can't afford to buy or forced to rent. So, you know, do you think that's the real issue is the government, are, you know, be basically, you know, have created this fear for the investor and the investors are just saying, this is all too hard. I'd rather particularly in the older generation, I'd rather go for things that I can easily sell like shares and put more money into super than buy another investment property or sell one. A hundred percent. And, you know, a prime example of that, Chris, was the survey last year when at the time um, that ridiculous Queensland interstate land tax had been brought into law. Uh, and, and as luck would have it, as timing would have it, the survey, our survey was in August. So uh, we, you know, um, and, and look, at that point, it was already law. It hadn't been in for, probably been in for about, you know, two months or something like that. But in regards to investors saying, uh, indicating what their selling intentions were for the year ahead, which is what we ask as well, the number one reason why they said they would sell in the year ahead was because of that tax, right? And that was something that actually had already come in. Um, as we know, we've obviously been, Pip has been very proud to be part of um, the campaign that actually ultimately saw that tax repealed uh, six days later after our research came out. Um, but it's never ending, you know, it's quite exhausting for the, for those of us, you know, um, uh, who are been involved in property and we all have in this discussion for decades. Um, but it is quite exhausting where there's just, it's just never ending. Uh, you know, there's various state levers, state government levers that are pulled, um, always continually seen as the cash cows, like, oh, we need a bit more money. Well, let's just, let's just do that with investors. Obviously in Victoria, we've seen, you know, a, a raft of ten, not only tenancy reforms, but also the new land tax uh, schedule there, um, and a variety of other things. And and people, I just feel, I, th I just feel that like when we when we actually just sit back and go, okay, well we know again from the census data that about seventy one percent of investors only own the solitary property. You know, there's a variety of reasons for that, which will be another. I'm sure you've spoken about on the show. Um, but often that means that um, you know the majority of investors 
uh, perhaps are accidental or they um, have gone off and bought one and they don't have the risk profile to expand on that. They might have bought a bit of a dud. Um, they aren't actually able to buy any more, you know, anything else. They just don't want to. Whatever the reason, um, they just they've just you know they've done they bought one property. That's all that they will ever do, um, and that probably doesn't take very much to spook them. And so, in an environment when we've seen interest rates, you know, skyrocket, and also at the time all these policy changes happening state by state, um, even at council level too, like it's never ending. Um, I guess the only thing that, that that hasn't happened is the feds haven't weighed in this time, which is which is quite nice from a from a policy you know in an industry representation point of view. I'd have to uh, clone myself even more than I do, but um, you know it, 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 there is just so much going on. It's over. It's overwhelming. Is probably the the right term for it. Um, not only at an industry level sometimes, uh, but also for everyday investors uh, who predominantly own only own the one property, and they. You know, many of them perhaps may not be able to financially hold on to those properties now in, a, in an environment of higher rates. I did see some research late, late um, recently that said, you know, it is those short-term holds properties that are being offloaded uh, in greater numbers at the moment, um, and and often for those investors at a loss. So clearly, you know, financially they just aren't capable of of holding on to those properties. You've also got a number of investors that have held on to properties under adverse conditions for a long time. So. In some, I mean, Perth and Darwin, for instance, have had a long history of, of losses or, or no gain. I mean, Brisbane had a very long period of time with very little um, activity in terms of capital Tell growth. Me about it. Certainly, if people bought brand new units in Brisbane or Melbourne and, and more recently in Sydney, they've struggled with capital gains as well over, over the years. And so, like you said, the survey last year in 2022, which looked back to 2020 and said, you know, who sold over that period of time and why. You know, you can understand why people would have taken the money and ran if they'd actually been suffering that and they suddenly saw some gains. But also rents, there'd been quite a lot of downward pressure on rents really in the lead up to COVID. And then, of course, since then now, in some cases, rents have, have gone beyond where they were beforehand. But I know my own personal rental situation, a couple of properties that I've got that only recently have actually regained the rents that I was getting, say, back in 2017. 2018. So, so you know, a lower yield. I mean, I've had capital growth in mind, as you would hope, given given what I do for a living. But if you had low yield as well as low growth, you can absolutely understand why people said, I'm going to get the hell out. You can also understand why those people, if they were in Queensland, would be saying, oh, no way, I can't cope. I cannot cop uh, an, a, a tax on top of the fact I've had no growth and, and very low yield or lowish yield in Queensland. For many years, so that sort of makes perfect sense. But I think the real change around um, the motivation and the reason for selling is really telling. But also, I think um, the states and territories that are perhaps harder hit than others. Could you sort of dig into? Because this is, I think, you know, you, you can talk about why and people tell you why, but then the evidence plays out, doesn't it? It's the states that are most aggressively targeting investors with their their legislation or proposed legislation, investors have voted with their feet, correct? Well, and you would think that, you know, the states the states that have the highest populations, therefore, naturally would have, you know, the highest volume of sales because there's just, you know, more people, more properties, more probably more investors. But that's certainly not the case because uh, this year the survey showed, um, and look, last year we actually only asked them at a state base where they'd sold. And as I say, the, 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 the you know the survey does evolve, so we can actually you know create and get this get this more data, and so we can all understand more what's going on out there. 
because it seems like a basket case a lot of the time. Um, but this year, about you know, twenty five percent of investors said that they've sold a property in Melbourne, um, which was the number one place, and that was a big surprise uh, to me. Um, the number two, number two was Brisbane, um, and then it was number three was regional Queensland. Uh, but when uh, and I think it was about was it six point four percent sold in regional regional Victoria. So there you go. You know, thirty percent of invest of, of survey respondents uh, said that they'd sold at least one property in Victoria in the previous 12 months. And as we know, in the previous 12 months, Victoria has been the one that's sort of been uh, hitting investors over the head with a sledgehammer the most uh, in, in regards to these new policies, which which generally make them, you know, increase their, obviously, their holding costs and, and make them really, I guess, question whether being an investor is really worth it. And many of them have clearly answered that question for themselves, rightly or wrongly, um, have decided that, the numbers don't add up for them, or they don't want the stress, or they, you know, they're just sick and tired of always having to, you know, fork out hand over fist, um, and they never exited the market. What's interesting, though, um, just going back to what you said before, Veronica, last year, yeah, um, forty percent of investors of survey respondents, forty percent had said they'd sold at least one property in Queensland in those t- previous two years. I was one of them. Every single one of every person that I know who owned in Queensland in that previous two years, and I know a lot of the investors, we sold at least one because exactly up until COVID, capital growth was terrible. Um, and generally speaking, um, and uh, rents had been going backwards for a number of years. So when I actually managed to get a little bit of, well, you know, I've got a little bit of capital growth for a property that I owned for 15 years. I totally decided to sell one of them. I did reinvest it into a better property, but still, uh, it was time to get rid of that one. So, you know, we are, it, it certainly appears from the survey results that investors, um, you know, they're sick and tired of being, being treated poorly uh, by policymakers. Um, and I've often said many times, you know, that it, I just don't understand, you know, why the vital role that investors play in society is not more valued uh, across the board. But certainly what I've seen over the last, um, probably since our latest surveys come out or maybe just before that, we have, Pippa's been very active in um, preparing policy submissions um, at state and federal level and that's created a lot of, a lot of opportunities for us to sit down uh, with both state and federal representatives uh, to represent investors and, and I've been on the board for nine years, I've been involved you know, in industry representation since 2006 but certainly from a, a property investment point of view, I don't recall ever a time uh, where we had the opportunity that we do at the moment um, because policymakers are, are finally, I would hope, I'm not saying it's there yet, but it certainly appears that they are open to uh, discussions with us. And I've always said it's a symbiotic relationship between tenants um, and investors. One can't exist without the other, but there has been until now, pretty much only policies generally have been going uh, only one way, a bit lopsided, and just to even have a voice um, is what we're looking for. And I mean, that is something that I've often wondered about. Why is it that it's seen that tenancy reform and supporting investors are seen as mutually exclusive by so many? Is it because it's politically expedient to sort of do a bit of investor bashing? I um, yeah, I, I you know, I appall- that 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 you know, greedy landlord narrative that is pervasive in this country and certainly in the media, you know, is is untrue and frustrating and I do my utmost every day to try to change that. I think one of the problems perhaps that we've had at an industry level and certainly for property investment 
Um, you know, Pippa has been around since 2005, but we are a non-profit membership organisation that's 100% self-funded. Um, we, you know, survive and thrive uh, on our membership dues, on our training program and things like that versus tenants unions, which are government, fu- which have government funding. Um, and when they are getting, you know, millions, I think some of them get in funding per year to run these tenancy organisations, and they do have obviously services that they supply to tenants, um, it's very hard when you've got, you know, until relatively recently, these quite grassroots property investment uh, associations, you know, it's very hard to compete with someone that's, you know, obviously their their coffers are full and um, and we are doing the very best that we can with what we've got, um, but we're not in the same league. So perhaps, perhaps it's that. I think as well there has been um, an environment where we've just been taken for granted. I think we're taking for granted, you know, probably for the best part of, of two decades that investors would simply uh, be there because of the capital gains or, you know, because, oh, we get a little bit of negative gearing sometimes, you know. What really annoys me is no one ever talks about how much capital gains tax we pay. It's very hard to get that data. I tell you that too. Tried it through FOI, um, through the ATO. Um, so it's very hard to get that. But I think we've just been taken for granted for a long time and the equilibrium is gone now. It's been gone for a while, but it's only the last two years that it's become apparent. And I think policymakers, p- politicians of all you know political persuasions have no choice now to actually get us to the table because the system is broken and we are a huge part of the solution. Nicola, I mean, I, I, I'd love to say that I can see something through speaking to our clients that something's going to be different. But if you just start role playing out over the next few years, right, and you know, if even if rates stay reasonably high, right? Um, even if they drop one percentage, you know, people are still going to be hurting on their mortgages a lot. Um, and so, they, they're probably negative cash flows on their investments are still going to be there. And so, I feel like a lot of investors will make the choice of selling their investment property because their home loans now more expensive, right? And when you look at how much people can borrow, it's very limited right now. You know, so and if borrowing capacity goes up most likely that'll be factored into prices really fast, you know, and so people have to spend it because it'd be momentum in the market. So there won't be lots of excess cash for investors, I don't believe. And I think a lot of investors are getting pushed out of the the capital cities anyway, because their borrowing capacities are are really tight. Um, And they're going to areas potentially where there isn't a rental crisis, right? Where, you know, they're they're going to areas that are uh, a bit more on the affordability and in the regional areas, right? Which, um, and so, what, is, what do you think, what is Pippa campaigning for, I guess, with the governments? Like, because you need a lot of things. I think, you know, lower investor interest rate, you know, because it's actually got lower risks than homeowners. Um, they're actually default rates. You could arguing for, you know, higher LVRs, like the banks have started to do 95% LVR. So, because lending's a big part of it, but APRA might have to step in to reduce the serviceability buffer. You know, what other things I think are, are Pippa campaigning on, um, you know, that'll give investors more confidence to enter the market when, you know, at the moment, the tide's going the other way. Yeah, and I think, you know, whilst all the data is showing that investors are uh, exiting the market, you know, uh, from a strategy point of view, I don't think they should be if if they can, you know, they shouldn't be spooked. I mean, those of us who've been in the game a long time have had moments like this before, you know, peaks and troughs of policy or of market conditions and, it's about, you know, writing that out, uh, you know, you know the whole keep your eye on the horizon because it's actually true because uh, it is a bumpy road uh, a lot of the time and there's a lot of the time when, a lot of the time when nothing happens, uh, a lot of the time when, you know, good things happen and some bad things happen but it's actually what, what, you know, what's happening in 30 years' time that's 
of all the difference. But it's a good question, Chris, because we're actually at the moment doing some research um, uh, about all of those things, or certainly about the interest rates. Um, there are uh, some issues in some states with stamp duty. Is I mean, obviously stamp duty. Well, unless that's just a whole other show. But you know, for Queensland, for example, investors pay. Uh, a significant, like thousands and thousands of dollars of more in stamp duty for the privilege of um, owning an investment property. Um, so we are looking at a variety of things uh, at the moment. Um, certainly, I have had the opportunity to sit down with the, a number of policymakers over recent months, um, including with the Queensland government, which um, you know kind of blew our socks off a little bit, um, and had the opportunity to address uh, the Queensland Housing Roundtable as well. Um, and I have got an invitation to go and meet with the Queensland Housing Minister as well, which has been a, a long time uh, coming. Um, not very often, you know, Pippa's been invited to sit down with Labour politicians in the past. Um, but that goes to show the opportunity, you know, it goes, well, unfortunately it goes to show how broken the system is, but it also goes to show the opportunities that we have in front of us. Um, and, and generally speaking, you know, I, I just advocate um, on behalf of investors and really try to get the policymakers and you know decision makers to consider incentivising investors. What that looks like, we're not too sure yet. Um, we have been asked uh, to put some thoughts together for the federal shadow housing minister, um, but insist uh, and, and incentivise investors not only to come back into the market but hold for the long term. So stopping a little bit of this churn, um, so that we can help to create a more stable supply of rental accommodation in the country because we don't have that at the moment and you're right though Chris like you know I think we might have even done press releases about this in 2015 when those APRA changes came in so um, you know nine years let's call it nine years in the making how long do you reckon it's going to take us to to dig our way out of this and and investors I actually Pippa put out a press release this morning because um, of our national market update which we do um, you know, every every few months, but in it, some of the commentary from me um, was about the fact that government seemed to be quite ready uh, and willing to incentivise the big end of town. Uh, for example, you know, on the supply side, build to red, which I think I don't, I, you know, I don't think that's a bad strategy. But they haven't offered one red cent to investors uh, as an incentive when we supply more than four out of every five rental properties in this country. So come on, guys, come to the table. Like we are the solution. We're not just part of the solution. We are the solution. Um, and it's about time that they seriously, you know, recognise that. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au I think we have been the solution for decades. And I think that that uh, and in the meantime, it's, you know, people are crying, you know, when did housing become a commodity? You know, wh why should we people be, be you now getting wealthy off property? And it's like off the rooms, you know, the roofs over people's heads. And I, and I get the social 
sort of aspect to that, but it's like our governments have allowed that to happen, in fact, encourage it to happen because they stopped their own investment in uh, in public housing. And so somehow, you know, the the, uh, the stock has got to be created somewhere. The problem, though, with, I guess, there's a, it's not just a rental crisis and a shortage of rental accommodation. Generally speaking, we've got a housing shortage. So, uh, you know, moving the deck chairs on the Titanic is one thing to say that, okay, well, taking them away from first home buyers or from owner occupiers to put back into the rental pool, you know, there, there is a bigger problem here, of course, which is, is supply. But I think that this is a very um, important conversation to have because, as you say, four out of five properties have been provided by mums and dads investors or individual investors and 71% of investors only have one property. So we are not a powerful, we don't have a powerful lobby group. You know, we've got a small PIPO and PIPO actually doesn't really represent investors. It represents investment, you know, the strolls. <laughs> so, you know, it's like a proxy. We're doing it by proxy really just because we've got the platform so we, we do a catch-all really because we're – well, when you've got the opportunity, you might as well use it, right? <laughs> yeah, it was that kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, totally. How do investors rank the states for their support of property investors? Well, um, and not interestingly at all or surprisingly, but uh, yeah, Victoria was 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 rated as the the least accommoda- accommodating state uh, in the nation for investors in the past twelve months, and uh, that's because of the you know, as we mentioned, the the plethora of rental reforms and and mainly that new you know. The new land tax uh, system that pretty much slugs almost everybody, I, I believe, um, so that they can pay back uh, all the money that they spent during COVID. Uh, but just as a prime example, isn't it? A prime example of, well, we need to get some more money in. We spent all this money during our, you know, 50 years of lockdowns. Um, here's the cash cow. You know, investors, you know, and they're just a, a complete misunderstanding of of the average investor. <laughs> And it's very hard. Like I know you guys do it. I do it. You, you know, bang the drum, bang your head on, you know, against the wall so many times, and try to get them to believe um, that those numbers, which come from the Australian census, and they generally haven't changed over the years. You know, uh, that that seventy one percent of investors own one. I was actually at something recently, and I had someone from the opposing side of our industry um, question my data and said that the data that they had. Um, was the complete opposite. And I didn't actually get the opportunity to rebut that and say, well, ours is from the Australian census. I'm not too sure where yours is. Um, I would presume it was made up. But anyway, um, so yeah, it is It is very frustrating. But you did, you did say something uh, before, Veronica, which I actually meant to say as well. It's like, the, you know, the government's been caught on the hop here. When I say the government, I mean, you know, state governments or any governments of any persuasion over the last 20 odd years who have a fundamental responsibility to supply uh, social housing uh, for their residents. And um, uh, Eliza Owen had some great data that I heard her uh, mention in a, in a quite a, a good show on the ABC. Um, but um, I think around about 10% of new housing supply used to be government-funded um, until about 20 years ago. That was sort of standard. So your social housing, obviously, things of that nature, uh, and that is now under 2%. So you want to know where those properties have gone, you know. So this, so that's what used to happen. Governments used to fund around about ten percent of new supply, and then because when, when you know, let's be honest, from about the mid nineties onwards, that was when investor activity really started to ramp up with private investors. And I think at that time, obviously, we had the CGT discount, uh, negative gearing, and things of that. But also, you know, some fairly decent market conditions over blocks of time over the years. 
And I think that governments kind of went, oh, whoopee, we don't have to do that anymore. Um, and so they did it. And not only did they not create that new supply, they also sold the supply that they had. Look at the rocks, for example, or anywhere, Brisbane, well, you name it, the supply that they had, they actually sold those off at the same time as not replacing them with, you know, one supplying one-fifth of what they used to. And then, so that was happening quietly in the background without anyone really taking any notice. And then obviously from 2015, you know, the investors who had been quietly there for a couple of decades were no longer there in the numbers that they used to be. And not only were they not transacting, getting into the market, they were actually selling in greater numbers than they would normally do as well. I think it's interesting, though, that Victoria, the response there to the government sort of saying, okay, well, property investors are a cash cow. We need to fill it, refill the coffers after the COVID um, lockdowns. And then you've also got the situation where property investors also took a hit across those lockdowns. You know, there's fer- various rental moratoriums, um, you know, and if you were unlucky enough to have a tenant that was affected, that their their job was affected, you were you couldn't do much about it. If you're unlucky enough to have a high high mortgage at that time, or only just purchased the property and you hadn't actually accumulated much in the way of equity and you had a huge amount of borrowing, you know, so e- each individual investor was in a different situation. Some have very low debt that was very easy for them to help and others were were in in much more dire circumstances themselves, might have even lost their own job. I think, and I think that's a very important uh, point to make, Veronica, because I think all of us, you know, are forever changed from the COVID experience and, you know, and across a variety of ways. But certainly if we think about, you know, my own example, I remember when those lockdowns happened, I... Um, I was newly married, but I, I was Sam a small business owner. I owned three investment properties myself. Um, and when those moratoriums came in and, you know, probably my mortgages were 1.5 million or something and I had three tenancies by myself, I owned them separate to my husband. I actually thought to myself, I'm stuffed here. And I thought, well, hey, I thought my business would that was the end of my business, as a lot of us did, right? That's the problem. Uh, when you're, so my, my business is about to go down the loo and I am completely screwed here. And I think there are a huge cohort and certainly in my uh, in my circle of a professional, not so much professional friends, but very educated investors as well, where we have, and we're only, all of us are only, you know, recently, you know, 50, still got a fair amount of time in the market, but um, every single one of us is, is sold um, some far more than others because we just never want to be in that position again because uh, it, was, it was terrifying for so many reasons, but financially as well that, you know, the rug could be pulled from under your feet just like that, like honestly, just like that. And I think, you know, the, which was part of the, one of the reasons why we asked that question last year in the survey was I think that a huge volume of people have been selling because of moments like that pure pure you know pure terror for a bunch of reasons but they just never want to be in that situation again and unfortunately as we saw during covid um we were mostly powerless um with some of the decisions that were were made on behalf of you know citizens whatever they were whichever policies they were so i think a lot of people just decided i'm I'm just not going to put myself at risk like that again regardless of whether that's ever going to happen or not but obviously they can make their own decisions based on how they feel about something. Well, it's easy to take risk borrowing money when prices are rising, 
and where interest rates are low and when there's none of those, you know, black swan events happening, you know, and then all of a sudden when something like that does happen, it does suddenly put in the, in, in the picture, you think, how fragile or how vulnerable am I to this? Back, back to the increased interest rates, um, because if I was looking at the, the um, report, r- the results of the survey, and um, if increased uh, if increased interest rates were high on the list of motivations in the past year, you'd expect Sydney to have had a higher number of sell-offs because, but it hasn't played out. And, and I'm wondering if there's any sign of a delayed impetus to sell in the most expensive city. Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I think actually, um, if I had a question on notice about that one, I would have looked back through because we, whoop, and this is something I want to do because it's actually really interesting to see the data, how it changes year to year, but I think, generally speaking, Sydney has often sort of been quite low in regards. We used to ask about selling intentions uh, and things like that, so I would need to look into that more. Um, I don't know. It it can be, um, obviously, investors feel happier there. Perhaps they've got more capital growth. Um, Maybe they're not as highly leveraged, all of these things, because, you, you know, there's a huge volume of people in Australia that cannot afford to buy in Sydney, let alone invest in it. So perhaps it's that. It could be that. Just a higher net worth in the first place. Well, perhaps maybe next year we'll see, you know, that change. That's the great thing about this data set that we've created and that we are creating is to actually, because no one really had been tracking investor sales, which is really embarrassing uh, until, you know, we kind of started to do it now. There's a bunch of data houses that are doing it too because I think no one really cared about investors selling before. Well, core, core logic do have their, their <laughs> quarterly pain and gain report, which is my favourite report. Oh, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I love a bit of contrarian stuff. I like to get into the, the nitty-gritty. And so, obviously, they, they do track um, investor selling and also the proportion of loss-making sales versus owner-occupier, which is a whole topic. In fact, we if we haven't released it yet, we've got an episode of with Eliza coming up, which is... Oh, great. As you would have released it before this comes out. So we've, we've recorded it, but it hasn't been released yet. But the, um, I'm curious to know, do you think the rate... So we may not, you may not have the answer in your, your fingertips around Sydney, um, you know, the intention to sell in the future, but do we have any idea about the rate of investor selling? Do we think it might have peaked or do you think that there's still an intention for people that haven't yet sold to sell? Well, uh, funny you ask that because that is a question that we do ask. And what was probably, you know what, the most uh, telling statistic in the survey and probably the scariest one in regards to rental supply was the question this year, which we asked last year and we always ask, um, uh, you know, what are your selling intentions for the year ahead? Now, last year, 19% of investors said that they were, you know, likely to sell and 12% you know, 12% ultimately did. This year, though, 38% of investors said that they were likely to sell within twelve the next 12 months. So that's like double um, the amount of investors. So that is, and uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, what is that about? Uh, I think, <laughs> you know, look, let me tell you, no, my, my, best, my, my best guess would be that in August last year, we did have um, the market, the temporary market slowdown happening. You know, clearly, in, the investor sentiment surveys is about sentiment. You know, in regards to you know buying, you know, often you you see the results kind of saying, oh, well, we don't think it's a good time to buy when prices are flat, and you're kind of like going, well, actually, it is. But with center selling sentiment, you know, when you've got those prices starting to increase, 
well, clearly this year, investors are feeling more confident and maybe it is the rising interest rate environment and next year we will find out this information. But, well, that is horrific. When you think about that last year, 19% said that they would sell and um, two-thirds of them actually did. So what numbers does that look like next year? Nicola, I guess it's... um that would be my concern, which is kind of what I was mentioning with, you know, higher interest rates, burning them on the home and their investment massive property. Well, actually, you know what? That'll get us through this window of higher interest rates, particularly if they stay higher for longer. Um, and I reckon the other issue I think is that a lot of first home buyers who want to buy places to live in are actually buying investment properties. And they're not, they're, 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 before they were doing that as the rent vesta mentality was, oh, I'll buy three investment properties and I'll, I'll, I'll rent where I want to live. My worry is they, they, they don't believe in that strategy. And I think even some reports out this week showed that, you know, that even the next generation um, have really high home ownership desires, right? They're not saying we don't want to own a home. Like they actually are higher than previous generations. So my view is that, you know, that even these people who are buying investment properties now, they're not long-term investors. They're, they're really just doing something to, rather than leave that money in the bank um, and because they can't afford to get a place or maybe they're in a new relationship or they're single, let's get an investment property. And then ultimately, when I can afford to buy a home, I'll sell that. So they're not creating long-term rental stock. And um, I reckon there's a real issue with people that basically just can't afford to buy an investment property. I just don't think there's that future demand because they've taken on such amount of home debt under very low borrowing capacity. So unless borrowing capacity goes up a lot, but higher borrowing capacity will lead to higher prices. So I don't think there's much money there. Like I think, I just don't know where these new investors are going to come from long-term because if and if particularly we've got this whole cohort of older people that are getting to the stage of life where property becomes lumpy, it becomes hard to manage. It's, you know, it's a low yielding investment. I could either put that into shares or commercial property. You might get this issue where you just can't create enough rental stock and build to rent won't do anything. I mean, it, it, it might add a hundred thousand or 200,000 over the next five, 10 years. When you've got two and a half million investment properties, it's really around the edges. Um, is is this something that the government's, I guess, really aware of? That that's no, I I think that's a really like um, scary idea. But I tend to agree with you. Like maybe the glory days are behind us, you know, in regards to the private investors doing the heavy lifting because the the capacity and the des- the desire. Um, yeah, and let's be honest, we're in a low interest rate environment for more than 10 years from the GFC. It's still low in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, but um, maybe that that's, yeah, the glory days are, are, are done. And I actually was at a, um, I got invited to the National Housing and Homelessness Stakeholder Meeting last week, um, which was online, which is, again, a, a great opportunity for Pippa to, to be invited to these types of meetings. Um, and we did have the opportunity to put forward some ideas um, just generally about housing. Because look, at the end of the day, obviously, Pippa, we represent people in the property investment advice sector um, and by proxy investors. Uh, but we believe in property as a fine, you know, as, as a way to in, and improve, you know, your financial future, housing security, all of those things. And so whatever can happen uh, at policy level to help encourage young people to purchase their own home, not necessarily an investment property, that's good for everybody, Right. You know, um, so I sort of suggested, um, obviously, you can all, there's a stamp duty, clearly, needs to go. I guess the stamp duty needs to go. Um, But uh, also there was, you know, even if you're thinking about the first homeowners grant, um, 
that's only for new, really, isn't it? At the state-based level, has been for a long time. It, it varies from state to state. It's not always for new, and, and thankfully not, because it's actually not the best thing for best home. No, that's buy. exactly right. But I mean, the the, the, the the actual grant itself generally is about fifteen grand. So that means it's doubled in the last twenty years or twenty-three years. I mean, come on, that's not in line with market. All these types of things. So there are a, a number of policies that can be changed or new ones. Um, geez, it'd be nice to have it a, a, a first a first investor um, grant, wouldn't it? Um, look, why don't we put it out there? Now's the time. Um, but if we need to do whatever we can to encourage um, not only uh, young people to try to become a home buyer, um, but also encourage you know younger or a little bit older people to become investors. Because um, I just don't know, like you said, Chris, that's a really interesting point. And I'll probably be pondering this for a few days after that meeting. After this, after this conversation, um, yeah, like where if 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 that you know we've had this volume, this specific you know particular volume for all these years, if those days are done, like honestly, we're even in more dire straits than we are now. Mm-hmm. Where are people going to live? Are we going to be having migrant camps like we did in the nineteen fifties? Look, got all these new you know new overseas migrants coming. Lord knows where they're going to be living. Um, but yeah, I think and 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 I guess in a way. It, from an industry representation point of view, this creates great opportunity for us um, uh, because, and it's not, you know, just obviously we always get a huge amount of pushback when I represent the industry, which is why I don't read the comment sections on media stories. Um, <laughs> uh, best not to. Often they don't even open them up. But anyway, um, but it's a great opportunity for us to have open disc- uh, discourse with policymakers uh, to ensure that. Um, we can, you know, be the solution and help to create some strategies and some policies that can secure rental, you know, supply into the future. Yeah, I think it really does come down to credit. So, I mean, I would say that could be a broker, but I can see, you know, what people can and can't do based on current access to credit. And Why do we pay higher rates on our mortgages as investors? What's that about? Well, I think it was just a way of just actually targeting investors, right? It's a disincentive. Um, and you know, I think what we need to do is kind of flip access to credit a little bit, um, and you know, give people more certainty, even things like interest only. So, um, if you're an investor buying, you got a five year interest only, you used to be able to get 15 years, like five years goes over pretty quick. Right. And so if you're an investor and you bought in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2025 or 2024 is going to come around fast. Right. And if um, we're borrowing capacity is falling 40%, they can't refinance and extend their interest only period. And so that property that's slightly negatively geared or even positively geared, and it can very quickly flip to massively negatively geared because now they've got to pay capital plus the interest. And I think this is a bit of a ticking time bomb, right? Because they won't be able to refinance. They'll go, well, I just cannot afford it anymore. I could afford the negative cash flow if it's interest only, but I can't afford. Yeah. This is like the big interest only cliff that people spoke about in 2018, 2019. That could almost recreate itself um, in the next few years if access to credit stays really tight. Um, and whereas, you know, with that, that cliff didn't happen because access to credit was still, you know, big multiples of salaries and people were able to get their way through. I just don't know if they're going to be able to get their way through it in the next few years on top of everything else. Um, so, yeah, I think it's something the banks, you know, need to get on now and basically create, um, you know, policies where... It's a low assessment rates. And if you're an investor that's had a property for a number of years, you might not be able to service this, but will allow you to extend your interest only and, and things like that. So mm. I watch this space. 
Um, Nicola, you've seen hundreds and thousands of property stories. Have you got a property Dumbo for us? What's a property Dumbo? It's an example, preferably a personal story. We love those ones. Okay. Of a silly thing or a mistake that has been made that creates a lesson we can all learn from. And it's not to call you a Dumbo. It's just because Dumbo is a baby elephant. <laughs> oh, that's easy. I bought it off the plan <laughs> unit in South Brisbane uh, in 2012. Oh, is that the one you sold last year? No, it's not actually. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I uh, I sold it a townhouse, but I did I did sell that to to buy a development site up on the Sunshine Coast, so that mm-hmm. worked out quite well for me. Look, that is uh, so. Ha- what happened? <laughs> it's still in my portfolio. I. I don't know. Is capital growth is is happening now? Um, but the rent on that place when I when I when it was first built and look, you know, I wasn't working. In, I was working at the REOQ at the time, so I knew a lot about real real estate, not a lot about investing. Mm. And the sales. It's a good distinction. My my, my thank you. And the the salesperson was very cute. Ah. And I was single. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I bought it. I did buy, you know, I no, I'm not even going to try and justify it. Anyway, so when when it when it finished, um, the rent on it was four sixty five a week, which is pretty good. One bedroom, obviously. One bedroom, one bath, one car. Um, it is very close to the new Queen's Wharf development, though, so I think it's just starting to earn me some money after two years. Is, is that part of the Dumbo as well, that you bought a one better? <laughs> and then And then the oversupply happened. And then the rent went from four sixty five down to three eighty, and then it was three eighty for ages until COVID hit. And currently, it um, is five hundred, but it's about to go up to six hundred. Um, but there you go. So when I bought it in twenty, uh, when it was first listed for rent in twenty thirteen, it was four hundred and sixty five dollars. Um, and until relatively recently, it was five hundred dollars a week, and that took ten years to get back. Yeah. To above it, so that's my Dumbo. Story. And what about the capital value? Yeah, <laughs> should I sell it? Should I sell it? I don't even want to talk about that. No, um, you have to because that makes the Dumbo complete. It's probably a hundred grand more than I paid for it ten years ago. And what about the worst? When was it the worst? Like you thought, I bought it in twenty twelve, and um, if I had used that purchase price and gone and bought um, a little post war ten k's from the city. Um, which I probably would have been able to for that purchase price Got back you. then, I would have made $500,000. Yeah. So, yes, that was my big, very expensive learning fee. Um, at the moment, I always go through this thing of whether to sell it or not, especially at the moment. But now I kind of feel that it's finally creating, it's finally increasing in value and the, obviously the yield's good. It's, it's almost positive. You know, you kind of like, well, it doesn't actually cost me anything. So, ah, that I just don't. But I think, do you feel your profession, unpaid professional advice? Um, I feel that I probably should, from you, Veronica, I'm hoping for. I think I know the answer is I should sell it, right? But for some reason, I just don't, which is ridiculous, right? I'm the head of Pippa and I've been doing this stuff for a long time. If anybody wants to um, learn the process to go through to decide whether you should sell a property or not, um, for an investment property. I actually, on my website, veronicamorgan.com.au, if you go on the resources section, I've got a little masterclass, how to decide whether you should sell a property or not. It's okay. Like, I sell it for 35 bucks, you know. For you, Nicola, I'll give you a copy for free, right? Thank you, darling. So it's, it's a it's a half-hour masterclass. It takes you through six essential questions you need to go through. To summarise it all, um, I look at properties as flyers, floaters, or flops, right? If it's a flyer, it's like A-grade, 
and try never to sell a flyer, right? If it's a, if it's a floater, it's B grade. It's sort of it'll, it'll, it'll bob along with the rest of the market. It's never going to set you on fire, but it's not bad, right? And a C, a flop is, should always be gotten, gotten rid of, right? So then you got to work out. It's not a. We know it's not a flyer. Is it a floater or a flop? Now, if it's a flop, yeah, you got to try and get rid of it. I don't think it's the flop. I think it might be a floater because I've got I've got a fly. I've got a couple of flyers. Yeah. So if it's a floater, the decision then comes in. There's a lot of other factors you got to take into consideration, right? So you got to think about how old you are. You just said you were fifty, so you're less likely to sell a floater when you're fifty than you would if you were thirty, because you know it's the runway and the opportunity cost of of less capital growth and that compounding benefit over a longer period of time. So there's there's more upside for somebody to get rid of a floater earlier than later. Um, you look at things like your tax position. You look at things like, you know, the cash flow on it. You look at things like um, has it been a, f- a floater or has it been a flop previously, but now all that development's finished, the surrounding development's finished, and now it's just going to sort of be a floater, whereas before it was a flop. So there's, there's lots of those sort of contextual um, questions. And, and there's also, you know, in terms of your personal life, you might, some people might have a, a business that they want to invest in and it might be just that it's just a drain on cash flow. And so there are other things, other reasons you might choose to sell it. So the floater, the decision to make a floater, is, to sell a floater or not, is always much more complicated than a flyer or a flop. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I think that that's made me feel slightly bitter about my hesitation on selling it, <laughs> but I still have not offered a new lease to my tenant because I am still on the fence. You're holding your cards close to your chest. You, you want to become a statistic in the next report. But, but as Kristen <laughs> said, you know, my ability to secure finance to do something else at the moment is is, ne- is not there. So well, that's, that's another very important fact is what are you going to do with the money? Nothing. It's like I can't. Yeah, in which case you might not. Yeah. But there you go. There's my Dumbo. There's my Dumbo yeah. story. Yeah. Evan <laughs> just made a nice point around, you know, the investor and the rental supply, right? Like, I'm not going to give a long lease because I just don't know for myself. And, you know, that's one of the inherent problems in all these conversations. So, Nicola, thanks so much for coming on. It was a great chat. Really good oh, chat. Thank you for having me. I hope I, I didn't rabbit on too much, but I'm very passionate about this and, um, Look forward to talking about the survey more with you in the years to come because we are creating like a, a really, you know, robust and very interesting data set that's very useful for us all. Definitely get you back next year. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.